As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? He felt terrible because uh, he was clearly going to ruin my vacation. Hello, 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 and welcome back to Danny in the Valley. Uh, thank you, as always, for tuning in. Um, I have a great show for you today. I'm talking to Pete Flint, who's a Brit. He's been out here in Silicon Valley for 14 years. He actually got his start in the late 90s at lastminute.com. Then he came out here and started another company called Trulia, a real estate listings website that started out small, got very big very quickly. Um, and he sold it. He listed it on uh, the stock market and then sold it a couple years ago for $3.5 billion. Um, and that netted him a payday of $150 million bucks. So not bad going. So since then, he has remade himself into an angel investor and now a professional venture capitalist at his firm called NFX. They've just raised a big new fund, $150 million bucks to invest in seed and early stage companies. So we'll be talking to Pete about his whole journey from those shores to these. Before we get there, I just wanted to mention two housekeeping notes. One, this is the penultimate episode of Danny in the Valley for season one. Yes, we have one more episode after this one next week um, before I take a break for Christmas. And next week's episode is kind of a bit of a grand finale. We're putting together a, a special kind of deep dive, which I think you guys will enjoy. But we use that time to take off and line up a bunch of great new guests for the upcoming season. I think you guys really enjoy it. So this, uh, as I said, one more episode next week and then, and then we're off for a bit over a month. Um, and the other thing is I wanted to just thank you, loyal listeners, because recently we passed 100 five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, which is just amazing. Um, and that's in the UK and US stores. So I just wanted to read out a couple of these that you guys have so generously put up. Uh, one is from Ian Woosnam, who says, I subscribe to quite a few tech podcasts, and in a very short space of time, Danny in the Valley has become my favorite and an absolute must. With a genuinely outstanding guest list, Danny's sympathetic and quietly probing interview style. Thank you, Ian. Uh, gets into the real stories and the impact of technology across a huge range of industries and markets. Brilliant. Thank you, Ian. Um, John Stanley UK says, fascinating podcast. Danny manages to review some truly interesting and inspiring people. Required listening if you work in the tech industry. And Tabby W1 says, great all-around podcast. Top guests, well edited, and perfectly presented. And she ends with the little, you know, the little double hand emoji 
think, which I've never quite understood, but I know it's a good thing. Um, so anyhow, one more episode next week, then we're off for a bit. Thank you all so much for listening, too, to keep the uh, reviews coming in. And with that, I will leave you over to Pete. Ultimately, we want to build an institution. We sort of, we look at Silicon Valley and we look at technology and we think it's not prepared for the future. We can, in some ways, turn the venture model inside out. This is the future. This is where the future is made, isn't it? Silicon Valley? Yeah. Seems that way. Whether it's for people who are living here or people come here, this is a remarkable place to be. So why does it need to be turned inside out, the venture world? Well, we think we could do it much better. There's still a lot of money around at the seed stage, but the operational expertise and entrepreneurial expertise that this team, NFX, brings together is super unique. We've founded, been involved in founding 10 companies that have exits of $10 billion. We've invested in 300 companies all over the world. Second, where we think about what is a great venture capital firm the future going to look like? And just in the same way that almost every great organization and and company today has to have a great software backbone we look at venture capital and it's kind of medieval we've been up and down (laughs) santa road we've been round and round south park in san San francisco banging on doors asking for money it's crazy how kind of antiquated this this business is so we're give me an example you know investors will somewhat proudly tell you that 99 percent of the people that they meet they never invest in doesn't that just mean they're super smart and can separate the wheat from the chaff, et cetera? No, they're wasting their time. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's like uh, incredibly inefficient. You know, I, I think we're trying to bring, you know, realizing that at the earliest stage there's a combination of incredible human component. It is fundamentally about the people. Combined with a sort of software workflow efficiency. So we've, we've seen how kind of Wall Street has been transformed or City of London has been transformed by technology over the last 30 years. The same thing will happen in many ways to venture capital, we believe. So in other words, like AI helping you choose potential investees, for example? Yes. The more data that's built up, the more insights we can build up, the better it can help ourselves and help our portfolio. We help to use software to connect all our portfolio companies together, sharing data, sharing insights. We launched a fundraising platform called Signal, which is free to anyone, which enables entrepreneurs to come on board and sign up and and connect with other investors through a warm introduction. So we're building these software tools really to to empower entrepreneurs with technology tools. I remember back in kind of the early days in the UK, lastminute.com, we found investors randomly through... Can we talk about lastminute.com? Because you're obviously, your accent gives you away. <laughs> <laughs> Just like mine does. It's, it's fading, but yeah. <laughs> you're obviously not from these shores. I'm, I, I read your Wikipedia page. I'm an Essex boy. Yeah. You have siblings or what was your kind yeah. of upbringing? So my father is now a retired professor physical chemistry professor where did he teach so university of london okay college so he was it was amazing because my mother was a high school uh, school teacher so um so she taught mostly ancient history some greek and latin and french and a few other things i mean we would just travel you know he'd be teaching all over the world so we'd grow up we lived in virginia Virginia. For six months, he was teaching at UVA, wow. Charlottesville. 
I think that's probably why it was comfortable to come here. Yeah. Um, to, to Palo Alto originally. So lots of travel, and it's very interesting, you know, sort of scientists, you know, technology, and growing up around that. And then I have an older brother who is, he has a super interesting job. So he runs Skybet. So he's the CEO there. Oh. It's a billion-dollar British company, British technology company. So he... So the Flint boy's done well. <laughs> <I guess. laughs> yeah, we did all right. So, um, so he's Skybet. I don't know all the numbers, but there was, I think they're doing incredibly well. So they span off from they span off from Sky, independent entity with private equity backing and doing incredibly well. It's an in- industry where the UK is leading. Absolutely. You went to Oxford, I believe. Yeah, right? undergrad, uh, yeah. undergraduate degree at Oxford, physics. And, uh, and then decided you wanted to be an internet person. Yeah, well, I had, so I, I was studying at uh, Oxford and like many, many people at university, you take summer jobs. I worked at a bank, an uh, investment bank, JP Morgan, because they paid the most amount of money. And it was the summer of 1995. And it was the summer that Netscape went public. As often on these internship things, they put the intern on the most kind of like sort of orthogonal area. So they peek, go and find out about the internet. There's this like, tell us what we need to know. <laughs> was that You're, literally your marching orders? Yeah, go find out about the internet. It was. Like, uh, <laughs> I realized two things. One is I didn't want to be an investment banker. And the other was just this internet thing was just astounding. So I said, well, I'm not going to work for a bank. I'm going to see what's going on on the internet. And so the next summer, I actually wrote to every single internet firm in the UK. How many were there? About 18. So anyway, I, get a, I get a, got a job at a joint venture with News International. I worked at the Times building called Line One. Line One was kind of like trying to be the, the AOL of the UK. Content from News International, the Sky properties, the, the newspapers, combined with the connectivity of British Telecom. It was actually pretty amazing. So, so there was incredible talent, a lot of resources, opened many doors. But it was also like this incredibly messed up corporate marriage mm. uh, between these big companies that the press didn't want to cannibalize their existing businesses at that point. This sounds very familiar. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> 20 years on or 25 years on. Yeah, it was a great on paper, but never yeah. kind of materialized. And so, but anyway, there was amazing people there. And one of my colleagues there was Brent Hoberman. Founder of short, Last Minute. Founder of Last Minute. And then... When he raised money for last minute with Martha, then he asked me to join as one of a couple of the first employees. Launched in 19, summer of fall of 1998. What did you you do there? What was your job? The single most important thing I was focused on was what they call today was growth. So this is interactive marketing. So I was responsible for getting traffic to the website. Did you know what you were doing? I knew more than the next guy. <laughs> you remember, there were 18 companies. <laughs> right, 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 <laughs> Maybe there right. were 20 then. But right. like, um, I mean, that was an amazing time, like an absolutely incredible time. Like, you know, went public in March 2000 at the peak of the NASDAQ. Last minute was amazing. Many things and PR was one of them. It's like it was a kind of incredible story from a business perspective, from a product perspective. You know, Brent and Martha have gone to do incredible things. They're incredible individuals as well. So it caught the public's imagination in a massive way. And then 
company went public and then just that time the bubble popped and everything went down. And I often think if I, if I kind of quit business at that time, in my entire working career would be in this sort of first phase of the internet, which was like all bubble and all growth and all did momentum. You, did you think about quitting? I didn't. It was both an incredible culture. People weren't there for the money. They, you know, they were there because this was an incredible team. So the first phase of, of Last Minute was about how do you hire people? How do you grow quickly? How do you sort of figure out the right kind of processes to put in? And the second phase was like, how do you re- build a real business? So like 2001, 2002, it's like we were... Those are the hard yards. Yeah, it was like a double whammy because the dot-com collapsed. And then secondly, like September the 11th happened. So you kind of once we... People stopped traveling. People stopped traveling. Once you digest the human tragedy, you think about the business consequences. Like no one wants to go on a plane after they see planes smashing into buildings. So the business was kind of struggling and so that that period of 2001 to 2003 was when you figure out okay how do you build a proper business and the timing you know while it in many ways is unfortunate was hugely valuable because it enabled you know enabled a company that had pretty sizable scale to figure out okay suppliers need to sell stuff consumers are cautious price sensitive everything else and the internet become online so they started to come online in droves and that you know 2003 2004 2005 was a huge business and then you left yeah so I left in 2003 it became a different company and I kind of felt that we'd like became roughly profitable yeah um (laughs) (laughs) more or less more or less it wasn't like gonna go bankrupt yeah which was like a definitely possibility like a few years earlier then I left and I moved to, I got accepted to go to Stanford to do an MBA, doing internet in London. Great company, great job, but like going to Silicon Valley and like spending a couple of years in California. And I've talked to people who like you going to the, because Stanford has such a beautiful campus. Exactly. I remember vividly walking down before I even sort of stepped on campus, like this is a no-brainer. And, you know, it's, this is where the incredible companies are, are made like google and yahoo yeah. and ebay like icons of technology industry and then when did you when did zillow happen or how did that come about i mean sorry trulia the way that sort of campus housing works the first year they put you up in sort of halls of residence and the second year you're on your own and i was like okay so um this is silicon valley like I want to find someone to live. And yet at the time, you could, you know, obviously buy flights online and hotels and groceries. You can find wives. And then go to the newspaper to find your place to live. <laughs> and literally, the only place you'd, there was a thing called Craigslist. And it's a sort of this almost communist platform where people can share and post. And so massive, kind of, you know, classified business, but it wasn't really professionally done. And so there was Craigslist on, on the internet. And then the rest of it was newspapers and speaking to agents and i was just astounded at that this you know incredible part of the u.s economy was not a you know it's not exposed on the internet so like so i kind of started thinking about this researching more into it and i just became sort of fascinated by this idea i was captivated i couldn't you know i started thinking about it iterating on it and stanford is just this amazing resource where the mba program sort of um you know 
you almost think like a CEO every single day in the case studies you do. You have investors like who are just hanging around looking to invest in students, graduate students. Um, and it's just it's that. Like, it's like guys at the playground, like just kind of. <laughs> <laughs> take some money. <laughs> Come on, son, take some money. <laughs> I lit- no, there are. There's yeah, like. A, there's, I'm sure. So they. Uh, but, you know, and that, and that cultural entrepreneurial spirit, which is infectious. So, so I basically like used every kind of piece of class credit against this project. I read everything I could meet with real estate agents and brokers and computer scientists. And, you know, I used to phone up these people at big organizations, big franchisors and brokers and say, hey, I'm a Stanford student doing a project on real estate. It's like the perfect, yeah, it's the perfect cover. A perfect cover. <laughs> and they would like, of course, you know, like, you know, let me spend an hour. This is intellectual philanthropy for them. Right. Whereas, you know, a year later, when I was like, not student running a startup I was you know they didn't give me the time of day mm. who invested in you first so our first round was came from a bunch of mostly angels they invested in our first round which we closed a couple of million bucks before we launched did you have kind of like an uber like experience where you kind of get into this industry that is in fact dominated by some pretty sharp elbowed operators and almost kind of cartel-like behavior. I mean, how hard was it to kind of, was it hard? There was a perception, certainly then, that real estate agents wouldn't go the same way as travel agents. In the U.S., it's 6% typically to sell your home. 6%? 6%. And there was a perception that the reason it was so high was sort of the information asymmetry that was and the opaqueness of this industry and the agents had access to all the information and the internet came along as going to expose this information was going to like crush commissions and so there was this massive protectionism for want of a better word around around technology and the internet and massive lobbying and so we actually launched with the positioning of like we're just a couple of stanford graduate students Tinkering in our garage. Tinkering in our garage. Initially, it was more on the positioning as a search engine for real estate. We launched just around when Google was going public. And it's like, and we saw Google doing this generalized search. And we're like, okay, there is like going to be specific vertical search. And so we kind of saw real estate was a discrete problem with discrete particular search behavior. And so, yeah, real estate search was how we launched the challenge this with all these marketplaces and again it's a network of a business you had this chicken and egg problem of like if you don't have consumers you can't get listings you can't get listings you don't have consumers so our goal was to kind of fly under the radar as this sort of student project to get enough scale and to get enough people working with us to have enough sort of critical mass as it happened we got a whole bunch of cease and desist. And I was like, going to say, did you get the kind of the equivalent of the horse's head in your bed? Kind <laughs> of, <laughs> or many horse heads? The thing that we were doing was fundamentally not about putting real estate agents out of business, and it never has been. The idea for us was to be like, okay, we want to be the consumer's best friend and helping them find real estate information. So the best content, all the historical transactions, everything else, Combined with a great user experience, and we'll make our money by just saying, like, don't spend on the local newspaper classified advertising, spend money online. It's more accountable, it's more trackable, it's more efficient. We started in 2005, and that was a kind of tough pitch. We didn't have users, we didn't have much product. As you might imagine, what happened in real estate over the next subsequent years 
it absolutely resonated. So we grew very, very rapidly, consumer traffic to the website. And at the same time, brokers and agents said, well, this is a super efficient way to market my properties and to market myself. And then 2008 happens. And then 2008 happened. So, yeah, I seem to have the worst luck. I mean, he's like <laughs> being in travel in 2001, yeah, exactly. being in real estate in 2008. Yeah. I mean, this was the eye of the storm because you have the real estate collapse, which precipitated the financial, global financial collapse. And so house prices went down a third, transactions went down a third. The industry was decimated. I kind of felt that two things were going to happen. Like, you know, the world was going to end, the banks were going to collapse, and, like, that scenario, nothing else, nothing really matters. Yeah, anymore, you're like, oh, me. man, my company failed, exactly. but I need to f- find some canned goods. <laughs> so we get to medieval times, which was, like, the speculation at the time. Or, like, once you sort of dusted yourself off, you actually realize, like, this is, you know, it's actually a really good opportunity. Like, you go back to, like, what happened in travel, like, the great travel brands, were built in 2001, 2002, 2003. And like we, we saw like it's sort of Western civilization is going to survive, then let's double down. So we'd seen that some of the economic indicators kind of tick and like uh, and, and tip in early 2008. So we raised $15 million. So we'd raised money from Axel Partners in 2005, just as we launched. Sequoia Capital in 2007. And, and then they put out that famous RIP Good Times presentation. So Sequoia is one, if not the most famous venture capital institution in the world. And they gathered all their portfolio companies, myself included, and said... Did you know what this was, what it was about when they said, yeah, everybody come for this little meeting? We kind of thought that it might be like a little sort of pep talk about how to like (laughs) how to navigate in uncertain times but we kind of it was a lot more shocking so they wanted to create an impression you need to move quickly you need to become profitable as quickly as possible because there's no more financing available i remember i was going back before we met and some of the coverage and i think this when was that it was in 2008 but before the proverbial hit the fan yeah, September 2008. It was a week I, before, like, Lehman collapsed. Right, and, and I remember there was, I read that they used images from, like, the Great Depression and, you know, tombstones and all this kind of very... I think the front cover was, like, a slaughtered pig. The message was that you're going to end up in, like, the slaughterhouse unless you act quick. Time is everything in a crisis. Yeah. And entrepreneurs are, by nature, quite optimistic. Exactly, and they've been through this before, and they realize yeah. that the best way to save the company is to cut deep, to, you know, as quickly as possible, to give yourself a long enough runway because there's no chance of raising additional financing in the short term. And most of the companies, these early-stage loss-making businesses... So yeah, that was fun. So, so did you walk out of that meeting and slash and burn, or was it, were you already getting ready to kind of... I mean, the real estate market had been declining for the previous two years. We kind of didn't really take their advice in many ways. We kind of... <laughs> I know, we were like... They were telling us to kind of cut, and we were like, no, like this is the time to like double down. Right. So it was a bit contentious at the time. Oh, um, wow. You know, like I said, the world's going to end, or we need to build a great business. So we didn't actually fire anyone, but we kind of kept things Did that warrant a talking to from your backers? What the hell are you doing? I mean, I think we were always pretty capital efficient. But again, we were like, okay, this is 
you know, a whole bunch of things had to kind of happen, but this is like our moment. So, and again, exactly those supply demand imbalance. There's all this inventory online, just like happened in travel. Consumers were confused and bemused. And so, and so really that point, we kind of did a couple of things. So one was like, we did a sort of like, it sounds sort of soft, but super important, but culture building. Like we need to build the team spirit to navigate this was like an incredible journey we were going on, so yeah. making sure the team was super solid. So, how do, so the world is kind of <coughs> crashing down around you. Do you go for like an away day, like paintballing or something? <laughs> <laughs> well, it is just like spending time with the team and right. and like talking about what this means and opportunities. And I think the I've learned over the years that like the Britishness in me is like if there's a problem. You kind of hold on to it and you don't share it. Oh, let's not talk about that. Oh, gosh. Yes, I know what's here about your problems, <laughs> young man. Um, and, and sort of insecurity and kind of challenges are not best aired. But we kind of turned it on its head and said, okay, let's, this is the situation we're in. We have so much money in the bank. We're not going to be raising any more money. This is the industry. People are still going to be buying houses at some point. And sort of, you know, being pretty open with the team about these are all the problems that we're facing. And it sort of drove this buy-in from the team that, okay, this is, this is a pretty interesting opportunity and we can start to change the face of U.S. real estate. So there was a whole bunch of cultural stuff internally, which, which is really building, important to build this foundation. Secondly, it was trying to work with the real estate industry. So suddenly we turned from being this kind of like sort of curious, like real estate website, what's this about, to being the industry's best friend and the kind of the opportunity out of their own right. challenging because situations. Because they could use you to get their inventory in front of customers. Exactly. So we were the most effective form of marketing for them. And the third, we needed to figure out how we were going to shift our business model. So we went from selling things to the corporate level to selling advertising packages and promotional packages to corporates to basically building out this massive inside sales force and getting hundreds of people on the phone literally calling Willis agents to monetize individual Willis agents to get them to advertise on the platform. to get them to advertise right um, so cold calling cold calling yeah initially this was born out of agents calling us right and saying hey we'd like to be featured more business and then over time we basically like figured out who are the ones that are most likely to buy and call them right. proactively because right, they're right. already using our platform yeah so we became profitable in 2010 roughly sort of break even and then went public in 2012 and were you like I've arrived <laughs> how was it Did you feel like going it? public I mean it's like a pretty epic sort of experience I think it's it's sort of you know they're like a few years earlier you thought we might go out of business we might go bankrupt so in the New York Stock Exchange. Did you ring the bell, the opening bell? Ring, ringing, get the hammer, ring the bell. I had some exposure to it last minute, involved with the IPO and, you know, the London Stock Exchange. That was an awkward experience when we were there because as soon <laughs> as... Well, it was awkward because, like, we just sold a bunch of stock to investors and then as soon as it, we went public, the price started slipping. There was a sense of kind of, like, awkwardness. You, you sold us a pup. It was different with truly aware. It was just the momentum was building. Right. You know, we'd come out of the the recession, and it was yeah, it was great. And you, when you went public, how much was the company valued at? Around five hundred million. 
maybe a little bit right. less, 400 million, four to 500 million. So pretty small, you know, at the time, uh, pretty yeah, small, yeah. Tiny. <laughs> <laughs> so things kind of gallop on until 2000, is it 14? Yeah, so we were, we were, we were building the business and everything was going great. And then I got a call from my closest competitor, the chairman founder of Zillow, Rich Barton. He, he called me, I remember vividly in the morning, he called me and said, Pete, you know, you're around for dinner next week. I'd like to chat to you about some, some stuff that we think we, should, we could do together. And I was literally at the airport about to go on a two-week vacation. And I, was, wife, and I you bet your wife loved that. And I, and I said to him, yeah. like, uh, no, I'm really busy and I can't meet up. You know? <laughs> I didn't want to tell him I was going on vacation. I yeah. went to him to think that I was like, yeah, I doing didn't deals. Sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't sleep. I was like working 100 hours a yeah. week. And, and then he said to me, Pete, I've, you know, I've got a letter here in front of me signed by my board of directors that is that we're interested in combining forces. So I really think we should have, we should meet for dinner next week. And You're then like, I had no, to tell I've him, got to go to Essex. <laughs> and then I, oh no! And then I told him, and he was like, he felt terrible because uh, he was clearly going to ruin my vacation. But so yeah, about a month, um, a month later, we announced that we were combining forces with Zillow. You know, this is like the number one and number two real estate sites merging. You know, and initially it was. My feeling was like, why would I do that? This is an amazing job, amazing company. Like combining with Yeah, I was your... going to ask, is there any kind of like, mm, no, I don't want to do that. Yeah, for sure. Initially, it was like, why would I do that? Because I think we'd been competing. It's one of those situations where we were, you know, the market had shifted. We started being, the category started being a product battle. People would use Trulia because they had this. I was going to say, products. because, yeah, they, when you look at the product, it's actually, I mean, they're basically doing the same thing, right? Exactly. So come like 2014, you know, I could tell you three things that they had that we didn't have and vice versa, but we were basically doing the same thing. So the, it had shifted from a product battle to a marketing battle. We were spending collectively like $150 million on advertising, a bunch of that on TV. So we were just going head to head, like on Wall Street, head to head in on the TV networks, head to head on Google and Facebook. And it was just like, it came after a while, spending time with them. It's like, they're really great guys. They're really incredible team. Similar DNA, the Rich Barton, the founder, founded Expedia. So we kind of had this shared history of being oh, in right, travel. Right. We'd sort of grown up together. The, the Zillow team came out of travel pretty much. So we realized, okay, we could combine forces and we could do what we wanted to do in 2019 and 2017. And so why sort of, however kind of painful it is, it's like, it's a terrific opportunity for like, for shareholders, for yeah. employees and kind of for the business. And it valued, valued the company at three and a half billion at the time? And that's from three and a half billion dollars, so stock for stock merger. Even if your heart is saying, maybe I don't want to lose my job, it's like your head is saying, it makes a sense. So it was... So we had to go through about nine months of antitrust review, as you might imagine, go through the FTC and all that process, which was no fun, but necessary. And I read, again, on the internet, you can never trust what's on the internet, but I read that your kind of stake was worth about $150 million at the time? I, stock for stock, I can't remember exactly, but... Ballparky. I know. You, you journalists, you dig up these things, so... <laughs> And so that happens, but then you stayed. So I chose at that time to step out of an operational role, 
didn't need two CEOs, but I joined the board of directors to help with the integration. You know, the, literally at the end of it, I was like the biggest cheerleader. How did you celebrate? Actually, so my 40th birthday was was on literally the day before we announced it. So I guess that the celebration, in fact, was like I gave my wife my phone because my phone was just like the stuff had leaked to the press at this point. Like, you take my phone because I don't want to, like, I'd basically turn my phone off for three hours and had dinner. So that was... Three whole hours. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so that was the sort of most visible kind of memory. And then, so while I was on the board, I basically took a little over a year off of kind of full-time working. Travel around Europe with my family. Jump off of cliffs and do crazy things? Not really. <laughs> Or just like quiet Airbnbs. <laughs> well, I had a, a three-year-old and a pregnant wife, so it was, there was no jumping off cliffs, yeah, but like, yeah. um, you know, spend, spend some time in Europe seeing family. and, and uh, That's quite cool. Nothing too crazy. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And so once, once that happens, obviously everybody knows the deal and it's, it's this amazing success. Could you talk about all, getting into the kind of the world of angel investing? Because I, I find it so fascinating here how it works. I mean, it's such a, a machine here. How does it work? You're part of the club now. Yeah, so, so I was... So I was kind of stuck in San Francisco, even though kind of I could have traveled and jumped off cliffs in Bali. It's like... You know, we're having a second child and son, daughter at school. So I was like hanging around San Francisco. People realize you have time available. So I kind of got dozens of people emailing me and say, hey, I've got a startup idea. Can I get your perspective on it? Can I pick your brains? And so I basically... How, how quickly does that start? <laughs> so oh, the next day. Right. <laughs> the next yeah. day. So I kind of got a lot of sort of inbound interest. And then there were these pretty clear sort of connectors and informal networks between kind of angel syndicates and investors and venture capitalists. So venture capitalists approached me and said, you know, let's do some deals together. If venture capitalists want, there's this whole kind of ecosystem where the big name venture capitalists often kind of work with angel investors that kind of as a deal flow and they pass deals between each other, maybe too early for a big fund but the angel investors can evaluate them. And so this whole ecosystem, you know, I was literally like 10 to 4 p.m. most days a week. I would be meeting with entrepreneurs and like they would be pitching me. And, and it's just this sort of incredibly fertile 
yeah. startup space. There's so many startups. What's the craziest idea that was pitched to you? I think the kind of craziness is, is like when it, you know, these cyborg stuff or genetic stuff where, you know. Cyborg stuff? <laughs> cyborgs and, you know, creating sort of. Well, here's my cyborg startup. Can you give me money? <laughs> They don't necessarily pitch it like that, but they like this is. <laughs> I'm like, gonna work on my delivery, but you know what I mean. <laughs> this is like there's where it's headed. There's a whole bunch of these things which, um, you know, I didn't invest in. I made, you know, there's some some wacky ones I did invest in, which later turned out to be really good. But so one of the ones I did invest in is Plenty, which. Um, oh yes, which, which we yeah we interviewed. You met Matt. Matt. Yes. Um, you interviewed him. So this was so this is a company that's introduced by a a mutual friend and and it's this vertical growing company so indoor um, farm warehouse indoor farming is like it's a kind of wacky idea it's a whole bunch of software agriculture it's it is at the time it's kind of wacky and then you look at it where they are today they've raised hundreds of millions of dollars it's like they're softbank's favorite food company yeah it's like and they're going to revolutionize food it's funny how these ideas that they kind of initially look like wacky because when they came to you, are they still just a deck? Yeah, there were some prototypes at the Google campus. Nothing built. And it's, it's interesting how kind of, you know, software is sort of permeating all these different parts of our world. And, you know, you can blind, combine these techniques right. with a good team and amazing stuff happens. So, and are you the only angel investor who hasn't invested in Uber? Everybody I talk about, oh, I was an Uber real early. <laughs> I know I was not in Uber. I missed that one, unfortunately. That was like I kind of, I was kind of running a running a public company yeah, when that was kind happening. Of busy. Yeah. So I I missed that one. So we circle back to NFX because you started this a few years ago, right? So NFX started 2015 by James Curry and, and Gigi Leverweiss, my partners, and then I joined about a year after they launched. But this is this isn't kind of a formalization then of your angel investments. That's separate. No, exactly, it's separate. So, so James and Gigi started working together in 2015. I joined in 2016, really doing kind of small scale investments together. And then this 150 million dollar fund is really what we think of our launch. So this is you know institutional capital. We're doing a combination of seed stage investing as well as sort of early. We run an early stage program for entrepreneurs where we invest 250K to help them get going. And so, yeah, we're pretty excited. And how does it, in 2017, how does the UK look relative to Silicon Valley? Is it still light years behind or is it catching up? You know, I was just there for a few weeks and people are saying, well, it does appear that there is a lot more going on there than there was, but, you know, it's all relative. I don't know. Yeah, so I used to, you know, I've been back and forth for the last what, 14 years, and there used to be this uh, this observed latency between the kind of ideas that happen in the U in Silicon Valley and what happened in, in London. I'd say that 14 years ago, that latency was around 18 months, and now I think it's kind of compressed to, you know, on, on average around kind of six to nine months, and in certain sectors, I think it's, you know, it's sort of similar velocity. Right. So... You know, things like fintech, some of the blockchain stuff, you know, some healthcare stuff is similar. You know, those are generally industries where they've kind of perhaps less 
regulation or less burdensome than the US systems, so they're executing super fast. So, but the big difference, I think, today versus like the last minute days has been the talent. So like there's just been this homegrown talent that's been built over the years that's turning kind of good ideas and good entrepreneurs into successful businesses. And back in 2000 period, at the, the last minute.com CTOs, were, we'd, we'd kind of ship out the, like we'd, we'd hired like a bunch of American business people that would go and work in London with us for a couple of years. So, you know, the, a bunch of the VPs were Americans. You don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to do that anymore. And that talent base kind of helps to recycle and build. And that that really is the secret of Silicon Valley. The talent, the people that is moving between companies. Yeah. And then that is starting to happen in London in a in a pretty meaningful way, which is helping to foster, you know, a, a bunch of, I think, more meaningful and interesting companies. So does that mean you're going to move back to the UK? Move back to Essex? No. <laughs> No, it's pretty amazing. It's, yeah, this is great. No, we're here. It's a very special place. I think I, I kind of moved out originally for just for two years. Like, oh, I study and then go back. And you kind of get addicted to the, the entrepreneurial attitude. You know, in, in the UK, it's like if there's a problem, people kind of grumble about it. Whereas here, it's like, oh, yeah, how could we, how do we fix that? Yeah. Oh, I know someone that could do something there. And so there's that sort of attitude. Plus, it's a beautiful part of the world and... Is there one investment from your angel investing that you passed on that you wish you hadn't? I'm sure there are. I'm trying to think. Um, there was a time in early lastminute.com days where it's in a very unique environment. So you'd meet everyone from like um, Mark Zuckerberg to Drew Houston at Dropbox and to the uber founders and i wasn't angel investing there because i was kind of bootstrapping we were just surviving right. so every piece but of you were kind of one one of them trying to yeah you would we'd go out for dinner and talk about stuff and like how do you build businesses and like really not everyone but you like you you'd go and like share ideas with your fellow right. entrepreneurs and so yeah for sure if i you know if i'd been more active then and had some liquidity then i would have like yeah of all of that kind of up and down and up and down was there one kind of your worst day of work? Worst day at work. I think that sort of period around the sort of, it's those crisis days. It's like both September the 11th and whatever, October 2008. You're like the CEO of the company, you're the founder, you're like, and you know, however much you kind of believe like there's an opportunity, you have this like, you manage like what were we, 50, 60 people at that point. And everyone is telling you kind of real estate is terrible, internet is terrible, and you kind of have to hold it together. Those are like, there's nightmares. You have to kind of fake it till you make it. I don't know. Well, I wouldn't say fake it till you make it, but just there's a sort of like, you have no choice in a way of like, this is it. Like, you know, you got to like go out there and you have all these, you know, all the team looking at you and trying to like, okay, this is this really, is they going to turn this around? Those are the most stressful times um, of trying to like, you're a first time CEO, I was like 31 or 32 or something then and you're, you're in charge of this money from investors and you've got to navigate, you've got to navigate this world. Those were the most stressful time, but I think they create bonds between the team members that's like inseparable and 
You know, right. same with Brent and Martha, same with my team at Trulia. There are experiences which, sure, you had sleepless nights, but the kind of formative experience that yeah. now as an investor, I want to try and help the next set of like first-time CEOs to figure that stuff out. And that is all the time we have. Thank you to Pete for sharing his very fascinating story and lessons from the wild world of the internet over the past 20 years. I will leave you to your weekend. I hope it's a good one. Please do stop on Apple Podcasts. Do keep the reviews coming. They really are a huge help keeping the show kind of high in the rotation, helping others find it. And you can find me, as always, in the newspaper at the Sunday Times, online at thetimes.co.uk, and on Twitter at Danny Fortson. Have a good weekend and talk to you next week. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.